Talo Falava. You're listening to Tangata Ote Moana from RNZ Pacific. I'm Kuroi Hawkins. Coming up first. As a region that has been impacted by a nuclear effect, we cannot not present that voice. Samoa's Prime Minister tells New Zealand keeping the Pacific nuclear free needs to be central to any AUKUS discussions. The latest ones yesterday uh, was Alan Bird, Governor of East Sepik. More MPs leave Papua New Guinea's government amid talks of a potential no confidence motion. And a United States academic says the Biden administration was too slow engaging with the Pacific, which is why it's now playing an expensive game of catch up with China. Keeping the Pacific nuclear free in line with the Rarotonga Treaty has been a recurring theme this week from the leaders of Tonga, Cook Islands and Samoa to New Zealand's visiting ministers. RNZ Pacific's Elisha Foon is in Apia and has been covering Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters and Health and Pacific Peoples Minister Shane Retty's three-country tour of Polynesia. The New Zealand government's Pacific mission wraps up today with the final leg in Samoa. Over the course of the trip, defence and security in the region has been discussed with the leaders of Tonga, Cook Islands and Samoa. In Apia, the Samoa Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Mata'afa addressed regional concerns about AUKUS. New Zealand is considering joining Pillar 2 of the agreement, a non-nuclear option, but critics have said this could be seen as Aotearoa rubber-stamping Australia's acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. I think I've, I've indicated to the Deputy Prime Minister, as a region, the security uh, arrangements that we have is vested in the Rarotonga Treaty. You know, both Australia and New Zealand are members of the regional organisation, the Pacific Island Forum, and we would hope that both the administrations will ensure that the provisions under the Rarotonga Treaty are con- taken into consideration with these new arrangements. New Zealand's previous Labour government was more cautious in its approach to joining AUKUS because it said Pillar 2 had not been clearly defined. But the coalition government is looking to take action. Prime Minister Fiame says she does not want the Pacific to become a region affected by more nuclear weapons. What I have uh, indicated to the Deputy Prime Minister is that as a region that has been impacted by nuclear effect, still ongoing, especially in the North Pacific with the Marshall Islands and the semblance of it still in the South with uh, Tahiti, that we cannot not present that voice in these international arrangements. We don't want the Pacific to be seen as an area that you know, people will take licence of uh, nuclear uh, arrangements. The Treaty of Rarotonga prohibits signatories, which include Australia and New Zealand, from placing nuclear weapons within the South Pacific. Cook Island's Prime Minister Mark Brown says Pacific leaders were in agreement over the security matter. Well, I think our stand mirrors that of all the Pacific Island countries where we want to keep the Pacific region nuclear weapons free, nuclear free. Uh, And that hasn't changed. It was discussed at the Leaders Forum that possibly a review or revisit, if you like, of the Rarotonga Treaty uh, should take place, uh, particularly in light of things like the AUKUS uh, arrangement, uh, things like the Fukushima uh, disaster in Japan, uh, the state of the nuclear storage facility in the Marshall Islands, All of these things are now um, coming to the forefront as topics of discussion amongst specific leaders. So again, I think uh, an open discussion with our partners such as New Zealand, Australia and others 
uh, on these matters. Uh, it's timely that we have them now, moving forward. Last year, Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka proposed a Pacific peace zone, which was discussed during the Pacific Islands Forum in the Cook Islands. This year, Tonga will be hosting, and matters of security and defence involving AUKUS will likely be a major talking point. Tonga's acting Prime Minister, Samio Vaipolo, acknowledged New Zealand's sovereignty and suggested a talanoa was the best process. We don't uh, interfere with what other countries do. It's their sovereignty and they make their own decisions. We keep to ourselves what we want to do. Yes, Pacific is a region of peace. We can use the Taranoa process. Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters and Health and Pacific Peoples Minister Shane Reti reiterated that they care and have listened to the needs outlined by Pacific leaders. They say New Zealand will deliver on funding promises to support improvements in the areas of health, education and security of the region. They are scheduled to arrive back in Aotearoa with their delegation on Saturday. There are now 23 MPs on the opposition benches in Papua New Guinea ahead of an expected vote of no confidence in Prime Minister James Marape. Governments in PNG have 18 months grace period after an election when opponents cannot bring motions for votes of no confidence and that period in place since August 2022 expires this weekend. A total of 12 MPs in the government of James Marape have now switched sides, with two moving on Thursday this week, as our correspondent in PNG, Scott Wider, explains to Don Wiseman. The latest ones yesterday uh, was Alan Bird, Governor of East Sepik, and Sam Basil Jr., both expressing that they were disappointed in the performance of the Prime Minister, and they, they had decided to move um, Sam Basil Jr. in particular, expressing that he was uh, disappointed in the manner in which resources were being distributed among MPs on, on both sides of the House. So some very high-profile people, and there with Alan Bird and Booker Temu and people like this, being prepared to move to the other side. At this point in time, they don't stand much chance of uh, rolling the Marape government, do they? But things can happen quickly in Papua New Guinea. You know, it's unpredictable. It's fluid. The government has expressed. I've spoken to the. I spoke to the deputy prime minister over the weekend. He's expressed that he's confident that Pangu will survive this vote of no confidence, uh, and that they have fifty-something members still intact uh, as as the core team in the uh, Marape Rosso government. But there's also many MPs who are dissatisfied with how James Marape is leading the government right now uh, and leading Papua New Guinea right now. And, and the expression from the opposition side, and particularly the MPs that have gone to the other side, articulates that feeling that's being expressed both within government and by ordinary Papua New Guineans. Now, the thing that stands out for me is that they have to find a candidate who will lead them. And, and that's what uh, a lot of people are saying that Peter O'Neill is there, but who else is there who can stand up and lead as prime minister, as an alternative prime minister? So that's the feeling that many, many people are seeing. Few names have been tossed around, but nothing solid yet. Yes, when they criticise James Marape for his performance, there's never been any specifics added to that. What is it that they are 
concerned about, about his behaviour or his actions? It's, it's becoming more specific as vote of no confidence nears. Now, what's being floated around on social media now is things like his alleged involvement with the Paraka payments, the Connect PNG payments going to people that allegedly have dealings with him. So those are the topics that are being floated around on social media, being circulated on WhatsApp. And Alan Bird also expressed a similar sentiment uh, regarding the payments made to Paul Paraka and Prime Minister's alleged involvement when he was a finance minister. All right. A, a vote of no confidence can't happen until Parliament sits. When's Parliament due to sit? On the week of the 13th is the date that I've been uh, hearing. Whether that will happen or not, I'm yet to confirm that. Things may change, you know. In Papua New Guinea, you can say something and then there'll be a sudden change in Parliament. A U.S. academic says the Biden administration's failure to fully engage with the Pacific during its first year is what has landed them in the transactional dilemma it's experiencing as it competes with China for influence in the region. Michael Walsh is an affiliate researcher at Georgetown University's Centre for Australian, New Zealand and Pacific Studies. He was also the chair of the Asia-Pacific Security Affairs Subcommittee on the Biden Defence Working Group during the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign. Reflecting on the past few years of U.S.-Pacific diplomacy under the Biden administration, Mr Walsh told me not getting the jump on regional engagement early on was a lost opportunity. I think personally, it hasn't lived up to what I had expected would happen, especially in the early days of the administration. I think when you look at the the first year, there wasn't the urgency to engage in the Pacific that I think that a lot of people felt there needed to be. Um, And I think that the Solomon Islands, as you know, the security pact with China and, and all the things that happened there, I think that's what really motivated the administration to really engage um, and I think that was that was potentially one of the the big shortcomings um, because a lot of time was lost. Uh, I think there was a there was an opportunity in the first couple months of the administration to really prioritize the Pacific and really engage the Pacific. And there was a lot of strategy talk on the campaign and then some pitches during the transition period to try to get the administration to make that a priority. Um, the administration didn't make it a priority. And I think that that time that was lost ended up, you know, really coming back to to bite the administration. But I think to give the administration credit, once the Solomon Island Security Pact happened, it did motivate them to take action and they did try to start engaging. You know, I think it's kind of this pattern of history that we have in the U.S. engagement in the Pacific. You know, we, we do tend to have these periods where we intensely engage, um, but we don't always live up to our commitments or live up to the expectations that we set. And the PNG visit was obviously one of those, even though that was, you know, a lot of things happened that made that not possible. Um, But I think that the challenge for the U.S. is that, you know, especially when you talk about the U.S. Pacific territories and you talk about the freely associated states, you know, there's this this expectation gap. Um, And, you know, there's this historical pattern of behavior and the administration has to figure out a way to overcome that. And so there was a lot of intense engagement, especially around the COFA negotiations. Um, but if you go back, I mean, we were talking in 2018 and 2019 about that needing to happen. Um, you know, they waited to the last minute. And that's not the Biden administration's fault. I mean, the Trump administration also had 
a lot of people telling them they needed to engage much more intensely. And so what's ended up happening, I think, is we've got stuck in this like transactional relationship dilemma. And when you have transactional relationships and you have another strategic competitor come in, they start bidding up the price for everything. Both sides are bidding up the price. And that's what we're seeing happening. And I think those enduring partnerships and those mutually beneficial relationships and all of those things we like to talk about and we like to put into words and discursive commentary, you know, we have to actually live up to that. And because that didn't happen in the first year of the administration and then China really started to compete, now we're stuck in this dilemma of, you know, how high do you want to go to uh, to be able to outcompete China? And you have to do that on each each single case. It's not something you do across the board. And Nauru is the latest example where a case came and people had to make a decision of, is it worth whatever it was, 100 million, 115 million, whatever it was, is it worth that to outcompete China in that moment? Because you're playing a long game. And so uh, so these decisions have to be made. One thing that um, the U.S. has come in for a lot of criticism on is um, the money that it's promised actually getting delivered or coming, I guess, passing through its systems to approval. What's your view on that process and what the U.S. is able to actually mobilize in terms of funding as opposed to China? Well, I think when you look back at funding and historically, I mean, look at the freely associated states, the U.S. has spent, you know, billions of dollars in the freely associated states. And so even when we did spend the money, you look at where they sit on the sustainable development goals rankings. You know, what was the performance for all that money that was spent? Uh, How did it help the average person living in the freely associated states? So I think you got to start with the whole question of what's the impact of the funding that has been delivered? And, you know, when we talk about delivering more funding, how do we make it so that it actually has more of a return on investment, not just for U.S. taxpayers, but for the local people that it's supposed to be supporting? Um, You know, I've worked in public health and other fields with the freely associated states, and I've seen the challenges they face in terms of capacity. Most people in Washington have no idea what type of challenges people face in the Pacific during something like a COVID pandemic. They think that money can solve it, but money can't solve it if you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the capacity already in place. You have to have epidemiologists. You have to have all of these basic things. And so if you look at basic education, you look at electricity, internet, um, you look at water, you know, you look at public health, there's so many gaps. So I think you have to start with how do you make the money that has been delivered perform better? And then you have the other question about how do we deliver what's already been promised or at least what's been negotiated. And in the case of freely associated states, obviously, we're having this this issue within Congress about continuing to fund the the compacts that exist and trying to fund the the newly negotiated ones. Um, And I think that that was a foreseeable problem. I don't think anyone thought that this was not going to (laughs) happen. And so, I mean, it happened with Palau already. Um, and so, especially in this Congress and how divided it is, and, you know, we, I think there's a, a reasonable expectation that we are going to be facing this challenge and we're facing this challenge. And so the freely associated funds, that's, that's one big issue, but then there's the other issue of this 800, you know, that they've talked about delivering through the, the summit. And so that discussion, you know, a lot of that was already allocated in in other programming and it was just you know aggregated together to be able to come up with a big number to show that the u.s is delivering 
Um, you know, when we're talking about these these values, when we're talking about hundreds of millions, in the case of freely associated, freely associated states, we're talking about billions. So there's a big difference between what we're talking about delivering elsewhere in the Pacific. And, uh, and I think that's one of the big challenges is just how we conceptualize all of this and how we talk about it and how we distinguish between the monies that has been spent, the monies that are supposed to be spent and how the money should be spent. The Cook Islands now former Deputy Prime Minister Robert Tapaitao has been removed from Parliament. He was found guilty of three charges of using a document to obtain pecuniary advantage and one charge of conspiracy to defraud. The former National Environment Service Director Nga Puna and his wife Diane Charlie Puna, who was the former Secretary of Infrastructure Cook Islands, were convicted on similar charges. Cook Islands News Editor Rashnil Kumar speaks to Caleb Fodringham about the case. The trio were accused of taking public funds amounting to $70,000 New Zealand between April 2019 and March 2021. And uh, uh, Diane Charlie Puna and Na Puna, they were terminated in July 2021. There was an investigation carried out by the Office of the Public Service Commissioner and the police, and they were charged in October. That's when the former Deputy Prime Minister Robert Tabita was also charged for conspiracy to defraud before the other charges were uh, labelled against him. Right, so $70,000, that's a lot of money, obviously. How did they go about this? So those three, they were allegedly, uh, they claimed things ranging from flights to hotel states on public purse. So basically, uh, there were some transactions done that I understand they believe that they had within their rights to use those funding. And if uh, they did not have the rights, they believe that they did not do it in in the intention to defraud. And since Diane Charlie Puna and Na Puna were heads of ministries, they were answerable to the minister, who at the time was Robert Tapetao. According to the trial and documents, uh, Tapetao in some instances was aware of that and he was accused of obviously taking advantage of, uh, of uh, some of the payments or some of the entitlements that were granted by, by the three of them. Yeah. Can you think of an example, a specific example of what they did, like maybe they did take a flight somewhere, where did they potentially take a flight to and why wasn't it allowed to be considered just public spending and normal spending that a deputy prime minister does or the other two government officials would have done? I remember the newspaper did an article on um, on Diane Charlie Puna sanctioning a stay at a resort when she was the head of um, ICI. She wasn't entitled to do that. And obviously she got the approval from uh, her minister, Topi Tao. Uh, and there were other cases of allowances, you know, paying themselves allowances or buying certain things, you know, meals and stuff. So the range of, the heaps of range of uh, charges that were labeled against him, uh, against them, the three of them. And Robert Baitao, he was reinstated twice as Deputy Prime Minister, once after his initial charges before the trial and then once again after the trial. What was the justification for this happening and what was the public reaction to this? So the first time he was uh, suspended was in uh, 
in October 2021, uh, 2021. That's when he was first charged. And then he was reinstated uh, just before the elections, 2022, August, where he retained his pending seat. And then again, he was suspended before his trial, which was 2023, before getting reinstated again after the trial. But basically, the government's reasoning was presumption of innocence before proven guilty. That's the reason the government provided when he was initially reinstated. And <clears throat> second time when he was reinstated was because of the workload given the uh, Cook Islands hosted the Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting, as well as the uh, there was a fisheries meeting uh, uh, late last year. So uh, given the uh, high more engagement from the public, especially the ministers, uh, uh, the, the, the reinstatement was, uh, was again formalized or carried out to uh, allow Tapai Tau to you know, um, help out in the delegation of the work that was required by the ministers. It seems like Robert Tapai Tau getting the innocence until proven guilty, I guess, privilege, wasn't quite the same for the other two government officials, Diane Charlie Puna and Na Puna, who seem to have lost their job. Did did the government explain why they lost their job, but Robert Tapaitao didn't? It's a good question. Uh, it's probably something that maybe the government can explain. I, I think there are different ways, basically, you know, uh, different people answerable to, you know, different positions. Narkuna and Dan Chalipuna, they fall under the Office of the Public Service Commission and uh, there are obviously certain rules and standards that they abide by. As a minister, I guess he is answerable to the Prime Minister and he is the one who decides what needs to be done on certain cases. I guess everybody is entitled to their opinion. Um, There are people who say that that maybe he was given uh, special treatment. Uh, There are others who believe that, you know, he should be given that you know, presumption of innocence before proven guilty. Do you think Robert Spytel's conviction will have an ongoing negative impact for the Cook Islands Party, which I understand is the, the main party that makes up the current government in the Cook Islands? It's interesting because Robert Spytel was charged in 2000, uh, 2021, and the elections was held a year later in 2022. The Cook Islands Party, uh, despite the charge, were still able to win 12 seats, uh, which is half of the 24-member parliament. And then they managed to get three more independents to form a government. So by looking at it, I guess it might have not made that sort of impact. But the views are 50-50. There are people or supporters who believe that what he did was within the rights or entitlement that you know he had while there are others who obviously have celebrated the conviction and said that, you know, justice has finally prevailed. So uh, I guess we'll have to just wait and see what the results in the upcoming by-elections bring and the 2026 results to know what's the view of the people on the ground regarding uh, this, this verdict. Meanwhile, in an update to this story, Puka Puka Nassau MP Tingika Elikana has been sworn in as the new Cook Islands Minister for Foreign Affairs, Marine Resources and Parliamentary Services. Cook Islands News reports he replaced Robert Tapaitao in the role after he was removed from Parliament. Mr Tapaitao, who was also the Deputy Prime Minister, leaves the Tongareva seat vacant. A by-election is set for March 12th.
Pacific people across Aotearoa New Zealand are engaging with Māori in new ways and uniting on how to honour Te Tiriti o Waitangi or the Treaty of Waitangi while considering what a new constitution could look like for the multicultural nation. Waitangi Day, held on February 6th, is one of the most important days on the calendar for Māori. Elisha Foon reports. The annual commemorations carry on the kōrero or talanoa that began at last month's nationwide hui, which also included Pacific leaders. Former Minister of Pacific Peoples Alpito William Seal says Pacific leaders of all ages are standing in solidarity with the country's indigenous people. Following the change of government, he hopes new cultural conversations acknowledge the connections between Māori and Pacific and carve an inclusive way forward for all. Hey, we really need to have a conversation, a serious conversation about what it means to be a, a nation of Aotearoa New Zealand, what the treaty actually means for not just Māori, but for all New Zealanders. Alpito William Seal says as a nation, New Zealand must be aligned with its multicultural identity. The change in government has become a cultural catalyst, sparking fresh dialogue led by Kingitanga, the Māori King movement, around creating a new constitution with Pacifica alongside Pakiha, key partners in that conversation. Now is an opportunity for our Pacific leaders and our young leaders that are coming through in both public and private sector to really think hard about how do we build social structures to strengthen these links going forward where Māori and Pacifica are supporting one another. Shortly after the election last year, Pacific Health leader Sir Colin Tukuitonga boldly stepped down from his roles within all government groups after citing no confidence in the new coalition government. Given the way the new coalition government is approaching Reo and, and Māori generally, I expect uh, that Pacific people might be more active. Mr Seal says about 20% of the population have ancestry connections to Māori. Political commentator Thomas Wayne says there is a cohort of young people identifying with being both Māori and Pacifica. We are the Maruhiri, we are the guests here, you know, we are the visitors here, and Māori are the Tangata Whenua. But we understand that there is a genealogical, cultural, waka voyaging, language, linguistic, genealogical relationship to the people of this land. I think there's a sense that we just need to turn up. And much like with families, sometimes in a family, someone in that family is facing a challenge. They just want to be able to turn around and see that we're there and that we are present and that we stand with them. And I think that's really important. And there are lots of different ways that we can do that. Mr Seal says politicians come and go, but it is people that remain. And they ultimately have the power to shape the future of Aotearoa New Zealand. How do we firm up the Tiriti of Waitangi as a foundation document once and for all? Those are important issues and whether we should be putting together a constitution where it requires two-thirds majority of parliament to change it so that you don't have a situation where any politician come along with some wacky ideas and decide we'll get rid of that. I think those are conversations that must be had. Mr Seal says the country must be united over honouring the nation's founding document while also embracing New Zealand's diverse and multicultural reality.
Samoa's Moimoana Safatoa Schwinki has won the Miss Pacific Islands pageant held in Nauru over the previous weekend. A fan favourite among the seven contestants, her win is being celebrated across the region. Tiana Haxton turned in online to the pageant live stream. Our new Miss Pacific Islands is... Miss Samoa! It was a dream come true for the 23-year-old who embodied grace, elegance and pride for her culture as she danced across the stage to accept the crown. Moimoana Schwenke's victory marks the first time in the history of the prestigious pageant that a mother and daughter have both won the crown. Her mother, Mary Jane McKibben, carried the title in 1997, almost 30 years ago. Schwenke thanked her parents for their love and support on her own journey to claiming the Miss Pacific Islands crown. This has been a dream of mine since I was a young girl, so it is, it is an honour to be here standing as a Miss Pacific Islands, and I hope to make you proud. The previous Miss Pacific Islands, Josie Nicholas, congratulated Schwenke on her victory at a special closing reception yesterday. The Papua New Guinea beauty queen assured her successor that she had the love and support of her pageant sisters. I'd like to congratulate the newly crowned Miss Pacific Islands. We're all so proud of you and we believe that you will make great things in your reign and we will continue to support you as your sisters across the Pacific. Congratulations and well done. Samoa's Deputy Prime Minister Tuala Tevanga Yosefo Ponifacio was in Nauru for the competition. He congratulated Moi Moana Shwenki on her victory. To the Miss Pacific Island 2024, Moi all the best to you. The sky is the limit, go for it. The Honourable Ponifacio turned to the other six competitors, acknowledging their passion and courage to represent their countries on stage, saying pageants don't define you. What you do from now on will. And it is my great wish that you all continue to advocate for the Pacific passionately like you did in the past week. And you were all amazing. And I wish you all the best in the future. The new Miss Pacific Islands, Moe Moana Shwenki, echoed his sentiments, sharing words of encouragement with her pageant sisters. That I am so inspired by each and every one of you. Your intelligence, your beauty, your talent. And all I can think of is that the Pacific is in the right hands and that our women are leading the way. Shwenki is the eighth Miss Samoa to win the Miss Pacific Islands crown, tying with the Cook Islands who have also secured the title eight times. She also took out the best interview, talent and traditional wear categories and won the People's Choice Award. That's Tangata Otemoana from RNZ Pacific. Thanks for tuning in. For more stories about the Pacific, head on over to our website, rnzi.com. I'm Koro Hawkins. My operator is Rachel Smith. Tofasui for.